0: Awesome. Let, let's look here at uh, the end of 1 Samuel. We'll look. We'll look at three chapters. So hopefully, you're not fatigued because we will read a bit here. Come buddy. Then we'll look at some points. So, uh, we'll, we'll. We'll. get into this more. But there's throughout the book of 1 Samuel, right? That we've continually had Saul and David kind of paired, uh, you know, and and put before us as a comparison. Uh, the end here, the, these final three chapters, uh, it's, if you've ever seen like an epic movie, right? Like uh, Avengers Endgame. Is that the last one? Yeah. Right? Uh, or Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, uh, or the whatever the last Star Wars one is. Or Shrek 3. I don't know if there's the Shrek 3. But you know what I mean? Like an epic story. Uh, th- at the end, you have a lot happening simultaneously. Right? and So understand that, that as we read this, you know, even what Jim covered last week with Saul, the witch of Endor, that, that is all happening at, simultaneously to our text. Yeah. Right? So, so understand that as we read. And, and so again, you do see Saul and, and, and David put side by side, as they're both kind of in, in a typical spot. Uh, and, and there is this question of, will you be ruined like Saul, or will you be renewed like David? Right? It is very, very, very much like Judas and Peter. Right, there's tremendous parallels. We don't have time to unpack them all, but between those characters and these characters, there's a lot of parallels here. Uh, and, and so that, that's the question I want to put before you as we read. So let, let's read here. We'll read all of it, uh, the entire book of 1 Samuel. Just kidding. 29. All right, 29, verse 1. It says, the Philistines gathered, all their forces at effect in Israel, camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistines' rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David's and his men were marching at the rear with a kish. The commanders of the Philistines asked, what about these Hebrews? Kish replied, is, not David. is this not David? He was an officer of Saul, king of Israel. He has already been with me for over a year. And from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with Akish and said, send the man back, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David? They sang about in their dances. Saul's playing his thousands, and David's his tens of thousands. So Kish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable. And I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. But the day you came to me until today, I have found no fault in you. But the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done? asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Kish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, He must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early, along with your master's servants who have come with you, and leave in the morning as soon as it is light." So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it had been destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him and inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to Besser Valley, where, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins he ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Carthites, some territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, Can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, Swear to me before God that you will not kill me, or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of other livestock, saying, This is David's plunder. Then then David came to the two hundred men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bessar Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with them. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you said? The share of the men who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as him who went down the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute and an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah who were his friends, saying, Here's a gift from you. And the plunder of the Lord's enemies, David sent it to all those, and there's a bunch of towns listed, right, and to those in all the other places, verse 31, where he and his men had roamed. Verse 1 of chapter 31, he says, now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified. It would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilgo. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtros and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the people of jabesh gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan they took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bashan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted seven days. <coughs> it is an epic ending uh, to, uh, to, to the book. Uh, let's have a prayer and then we'll dig into it here and find a few points from it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, uh, we do thank you, God, as we have many, many, many times here, uh, just for your word, God. Uh, Father, we do appreciate how it does obviously speak to us clearly, uh, honestly. Uh, doesn't blur things, God, but it does show us with great clarity how you work, God, and how our lives uh, are meant to, meant to function, Father. We, we do pray, God, that as we look at this text, uh, we can glean the lessons we are meant to, le- to, to learn, God. We, we desperately want to be a people that don't follow the path of Saul, but instead choose the path of David. Father, we understand that, that within us all, God, is a, is a darkness that desires to, to be stubborn and, and, and unsubmissive to you, God, but we pray you help us, God. Help us to pe- be a people that, that really, truly clothe ourselves with humility and walk in your ways and trust in you always, God. Be with us as we look at this text. and press name we pray. Amen. It is a, it's a bit of a downer. Uh, I mean, it is the fulfillment of all that ha- has been said before. Uh, but it is a tragic end for, for, for Saul, uh, but, but as it often is in the Bible and in life, when it is very dark, there is still a glimmer of hope, right? Uh, when, when everything seems to be going wrong, there is still a reason to have hope. Uh, and as Israel collapses in on itself and the Philistines run uh, rampant, uh, you see a growing, a growing group with David in uh, and, and hope for the future of Israel. Uh, But for these two men, it is the the, the reality that they are faced with two very different destinations. Saul comes to ruin, and David begins to be renewed. Saul comes to ruin, and David begins to be renewed. And so we'll look at that and kind of the elements that bring about David's renewal, uh, and obviously the flip side of not becoming like Saul. Amen? You know, first and foremost, there is this reality that befalls both of these characters, and that they are both at rock bottom. You know, and Jim did a great job last week of, of unpacking Saul and the Witch of Endor, uh, and that is a crazy, crazy occurrence, right? Uh, but Again, we got to understand logistically as the author, you know, puts these scenes before us. Uh, all of this is happening simultaneous. All right, if you remember that, you know, I think even Jim referenced that. Uh, you know, at the at the beginning of 28 of Saul and the Witch of Endor, you have you have the armies assembling. Right? And so it's at that moment, as those armies are assembling, David is there on the Philistine side, just as Saul is there on the Israelite side. Saul is terrified, and the Philistines are also terrified at the thought of having David there. But, but it's an interesting thing, because you have these two you know, these two men who, again, have time and time again been put side by side. Uh, one is consulting a medium, and the other is fighting against God's people. Right, and it's almost as if the author is is pushing us to consider who's in a worse position: Saul consulting a medium, God not even listening to him anymore, or David? They're aligned with the Philistines, right? Fully prepared to go to go to battle against God's people. All right now, the correct answer is Saul. Okay, Amen. Right. In case you were on the fence about that, uh, you, you, you don't want to ever get to a place where, where God doesn't listen to you anymore. It's a scary place. Right? But, but Na- David, nonetheless, is also in a mess. Right? And it's important to see. Right? It's important to understand right? that both of these heroes are making a mess of their lives. This is, again, I, one thing I've said many, many times, and I'll say many, many times you know, in the future as well. Is we have to, So many people look at the Bible or look at Christianity, and they think the world is divided into good people, bad people. And that God loves the people who are good people and God hates the people who are bad people. But you know, God loves Saul and David equally. They're making radically different choices, radically different decisions. The posture of their heart is very, very different. I mean, God's willing to work with both. The world is not divided, good people, bad people. Everyone is bad. Christians are merely those who accept that reality and choose to humble themselves before God. Saul and David are both in messes. One of them is going to humble themselves before God, and the other is not. One of them is going to admit defeat in his heart, allow rock bottom to do what it's meant to do, and turn him around. The other is not. You know, and for David, that, 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 that uh, downward spiral to rock bottom is scary. I mean, think about that scene, right? As he's there lining up to go fight against Israel's, you know, his, his countrymen. And it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any sense that David is going to pull out at the last minute or swap sides at the last minute. You know, we'll talk about it a little bit next point. But I mean, even Akish is like, you know, let's bring him into battle. All the commanders are like, this seems stupid, right? I mean, he's got, you've made the, the bodyguard of your head the guy who cut off our giant's head. It seems like a stupid idea, right? And, and, and But that's a dark moment for David. And it's a dark moment for that chapter. Because the only people mentioning God in that chapter are Philistines. Not David, but the Philistines. And specifically Akish. Right. David then gets out of that, that, that dilemma that he had got himself in in terms of fighting against Israel. And it says they make this three-day journey back to Ziklag only to arrive and find it had been pillaged by the Amalekites. And then that's a pretty dark, dark moment there. You know, it says there in chapter 30, verses 3 to 6, right? When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, their wives, sons, daughters taken. Verse 4, David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. You ever been there before? Crying till you have nothing left. That's a dark, dark place. It says David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Verse six, there, in chapter thirty. Each one was bitter in spirit. It's a dark moment. David's compromises, his loss of hope, taken into to a very, very dark place. We're literally. Is there hope? Many of these mighty men who had rallied to him at the cave of Adullam during David's previous moments are now gathering around him, not to help him find strength in God, but thinking, man, let's kill this guy. He's brought nothing but disaster on our lives. We came to him indebted and distressed, and now what's happened? Things have gotten even worse. And it's the bitterness of rock bottom. So many people often ask the question of why does God allow something like this to happen? Why does a loving God allow suffering? The times where we weep, where there is no energy left to weep, is often when we experience immense suffering. And so many people look at that scenario and they think, well, why would a loving God allow that? How could he? If he really loves, why would he permit that kind of tragedy to happen? and it's a hard question. But I think the answer is pretty plain. You don't have to turn there but Matthew 21 verse 44 is Jesus is talking about himself being the cornerstone. He says there Matthew 21 verse 44 he says anyone who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And of course that stone is himself so what God is saying is that you have a choice in life. You can fall on Jesus and be broken, or he will come down on you and you will be crushed. But either way, you have to be humbled. Either way, you have to see that you do not have the strength to endure. And that's the moment that Saul and David are both being brought to. This realization that they have nowhere else to turn to but to God. And as we know from last week, Saul makes the wrong choice. But thankfully, David makes the correct one. And as I studied this out over the week, you know, I I I couldn't get away from that verse, you know, where it says that David found strength in God. You know, there in chapter 30, verse 6. It's such a small sentence, but it's such a monumental turning point. But David found strength in the Lord his God. You know, David learned the point of bitterness, you know, the bitterness of rock bottom. That the bitterness of rock bottom is always meant to turn us back to God. All right? It's always meant to turn us back to God. You know, and it is an interesting thing as you compare these two, you know, and Jim did a great job talking about this idea you know that 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 even Saul, before he consults the medium, he does inquire of God, but God doesn't answer. Right? And David here in our text is gonna to, gonna to get Abiathar to come uh, with the Ephod, and David is also gonna inquire of God, and so they both do inquire of God. And you know Saul doesn't get an answer, and David doesn't does get an answer. But but what precedes that is what makes them different. Before David inquires of God, David found God. David found encouragement in God. David turned to God, not with a request for him to be saved, but as a reach of desperation of having no one else to turn to. That's a crucial thing, guys. It's a crucial thing. You know, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 51. You know the flip there, right? And it says in Psalm 51 down there in 16 17, 17, it says about God, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Maybe that's the lesson David learned in that moment. He was broken. He was brought down. And he turned to the only place he could turn, and that was to God. And that's why when he then inquires of God, God responds. God gives him direction because the posture of his heart has shifted. He has nothing to bring, but he is admitting defeat. He's surrendering. He is humbling himself. He is falling on that stone and allowing himself to be broken. Saul, even as he inquires, is still trying to manipulate and control the situation. God's already told Saul what to do. There is, in some some sense, no need for Saul to even inquire you know i met with someone recently and they they were going through a difficult time and you know we talked about here's what the scriptures say and here's the path and you know their response was well i'll go pray about that and 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 i kind of you know push back a little bit I'm, i'm not sure you need to pray about that i think you need to do it because there comes a time when you can saul can pray all he wants asking god for a different direction But God had already spoken to Saul, had already laid out the path. And he can inquire all day long, but that wasn't going to change. The response from God was clear, and Saul needed to walk in obedience. But he would never walk in obedience because the posture of his heart was wrong. He hadn't fallen and been broken as he needed to be. And so God was going to bring him down. And this is such a difficult thing, but man, the bitterness of rock bottom should motivate us to not mess around with this. And this is one of my favorite passages is when you think about suffering. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 there, you know, Paul writes, he says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. One of the great misquoted scriptures in in the Bible is this idea that God will never give you more than you can handle. No, God is going to do specifically that. David there, surrounded by his mighty men, talking about stoning him is more than he can handle, and God is behind all of that. Look at it in a second. It's God that's orchestrating it all. And he's doing that so that David would learn this lesson. To not rely on himself, but to rely on God. To not trust in his own strength, his own intellect, to get him out of this scenario, but to trust in God. And Paul learns that lesson as he was under great pressure himself, even to the point of feeling like he had received a sentence of death. But he looked on it and he realized that the lesson he needed to learn was to trust in God no matter what. Everyone in this room will at one point have the bitterness of rock bottom right before you. Most of you will have times in your life where you will shed tears like David did with no strength left to cry anymore. And it'll feel like everything in life is opposed to you and coming down all around you. That's a crucial moment. It's a crucial moment for David. You've got to follow his example and find strength in God, not turning to him for a solution. But turning to Him with that heartfelt, humble outreach to trust in Him and to look to Him. Amen? Secondly, what we see here is in all of this, the sweetness of God's sovereignty. As it's very clear, David, up to that point of finding strength in God, is doing everything wrong. Everything wrong. And there's some very interesting things happening in this this story, right? Right? You know, like we talked about earlier, was David actually going to go fight Israel? I mean, it definitely seems like it. Because even as Akish tries to say, okay, yeah, yeah, get out of here, David. David fights back. He pushes back. Right? But even as he pushes back, think about what he's saying there. He's saying what? I've not done anything wrong all this time I've been with you. Which he'd been lying to Akish the whole time he had been with him. I mean, surely David knew that. But lying is just becoming second nature to David, perhaps, at this point. And that's a scary, scary thing. And he's going to reap that later on, as we talked about, with, with the whole Bathsheba and Uriah situation, as lying comes way too easily. for him. But David's again, he's not, not in a great spot. But look back 29.6. Look what Akish says to him. He calls David and says to him, As surely as the Lord lives, why is a Philistine king... Speaking like that, it's not David's influence, because as we know, David's not doing anything spiritual here. He's flat lying through his teeth. But I think the writer is trying to show us something. Because what's going to happen? Akish, at the behest of his commanders, is going to send David back. And David and his men are going to arrive back at just the right moment. They're going to travel three days, and they're going to find their home base, has been burned to the ground. Right? And if you're familiar with the geography of that region, you know, there's a whole lot of nothing. All right? and that's probably why the men thought, man, flat, there's no way of recovering from the raiding party because who knows where they have gone. All right? But even as they go out and try to find all that has been lost, they just so happen to come across an Egyptian slave that had been discarded. Just so happened. And they're able to revive that guy, make some promises, do some negotiations. Smart guy on his part for making those negotiations, right? You know, and and lo and behold, what happens? That guy can lead him right to where the Amalekites are. Well, is it a good time to find the Amalekites? For sure, they're feasting. They're drunk, right? Perfect time. Cover a night, go in, rape, take everything back. Now, what's the interesting thing is that whole time David was, you know, under Achish's rule. What was he doing? He was raiding the Amalekites. Here, what does he do? He goes and wipes out a vast majority of the Amalekites. Why has Saul been rejected as king? Because he didn't wipe out the Amalekites. David, in his, even in his darkest time of rebellion, what's he doing? He's fulfilling God's will. He's doing what God had said needed to be done. Is David doing that intentionally? Is he doing it consciously? No. (laughs) He's literally doing most of it to save his own neck. And yet, God's word is fulfilled. Sovereignty of God. He's in control of all things. There's nothing that's happening by coincidence or accidents. God is in control. We sing a whole song that is about that. God is in control. And then we go through life wrecked with anxiety. Do we really believe he's in control? I mean, many of us can look back to even before we became a Christian, right? And in chart decisions that we made that ultimately God ended up using to bring about our salvation. Even before you repented. You know, I look at decisions I made and choices I made that God used before I even agreed to study the Bible, before the thought had even entered my mind that I needed God. Now, what does that tell us? God is sovereign. He's in control. Why do we fear? Why do we get wrecked with anxiety? God's going to accomplish His will. And as they do that, as, they, as as David finds strength in God, and as they, you know, begin to, to work in harmony with God, I mean, verse 18, they recover everything. Verse 19, nothing's min- missing. Verse 19 as well, David brings everything back. It's a beautiful picture of, again, David realizing, you know what, God is in control. When you think of anyone, you know, who had been, you know, if any of us go through what David had gone through, Again. Decades on the run. But anointed king. And then spent decades running for his life. But as he steps back from his life, I'm sure he began to see, man, God had a plan. God had a purpose. Now it's so hard for us to do that. We get so zoomed in sometimes on, on the problem in front of us. And that's all we see. Problem in our marriage. Problems with our family, our kids. Problems at work. Pressures of life. Difficulty of being a Christian in a non-Christian world. Trying to live counterculture. man, That's hard. We can get so zoomed in on our immediate problems and lose sight of them. God's in control. God is in control. And we can rail against God sometimes especially in those moments of, of dark bitterness of rock bottom, of why are you letting this happen? Why is this happening? And you, you may not get an answer to that why question this side of eternity. But what you are meant to know from stories like this, man, God is sovereign. He has a purpose. He's not going to be thwarted by stubborn soul. His plan's not going be to be derailed by David's deviance. God is going to accomplish it. Man, that's good news. That's comforting. Right? When we went through Romans, right, one of the great passages that everyone loves in Romans is this one. This idea that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, good things and bad things. And contextually, for Romans 8, it's mainly bad things. Right? I mean, really, Romans eight, right? What precedes this? Man, consider our, you know, the, our present sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. And it's hardships. Yeah, Paul had learned to step back and look and see. You know what? In everything, God works. In everything, again, we may not have the answers to that. This life. That's a reality. Book of Job very bluntly informs us of that. Job is never given the behind-the-scenes picture of why everything happened. But what Job did realize at the end is that God is in control. He is sovereign. Man, being loved by the person in complete control of all things, that's sweet. That should bring a peace to our hearts. In the midst of the storms, it should give us, man, courage to face whatever comes our way. Amen. Third, and lastly, and quickly, when we do grasp these things, right, when the bitterness of rock bottom turns our heart back to God, we realize the sweetness of of serving the sovereign God that we serve, that, that, man, that repentance is refreshing. I mean, and this scene really is quite epic, right? Again, I don't, you know, read it a couple times, and it's, Israel, as it is around Saul, is collapsing and being overrun, but, but, Israel is being reborn, right? They are rallying to David. David is regaining what had been lost. Right? A different spirit is beginning to run through the people, right? I mean, I love the scene as they go and they, they overrun the Amalekites and they gather all the, all the plunder and they bring it back, uh, you know, and of course, you know, David's mighty men, they are rough around the edges. Uh, and, you know, all, all the people who had been too tired and who had not gone, uh, David, some of David's mighty men are like, they're not having their share. They can't have it. They can have their wives and children back, and then right, we'll show them some level of grace, but no, no plunder for them. Right? And it's very interesting, right? Because again, you, can, you think about it, there's two, two people on very different ends of the spectrum here. Saul also got some plunder from the Amalekites. But Saul was told he can't have any of it. David's never given that command. Saul got all the plunder and made a statute to himself. Right? David gets all the plunder and he makes a, makes a statute, a command, saying everyone gets equal share. One is serving self. The other has been taught, through the bitterness of life, that God is everything. And he's not serving King David, he's serving the Lord. And the victory was not brought about by his own strength, it was brought about by God. And so the the spoils from that victory, the plunder from that victory, are not his. Though the men are declaring, look at all of David's plunder, David takes all of David's plunder and he scatters it. He scatters it to those who are still in Israel. He scatters it to those who didn't even fight. David understands grace vertically and then he extends it horizontally. Man, when we're trained, when we really encounter God, if we're really finding strength in God, there's no need to live for self. Living for self is what brings you to rock bottom. David following, you know, David thinking to himself is what caused him to end up in that position. David living for himself is what brought him to rock bottom. David finding strength in God, he doesn't need to live for himself. He doesn't need to use the relationships around him to try to satisfy that God-shaped hole in his heart. No, he has found strength in God. Amen. He has found peace with God. And so he doesn't, he's not looking to it from people. He's not looking to it from his success. He's not looking to it, you know, to gain it from his wealth. He's found it in God. Right? That, that's, that's how it all works. That's how life works. That is the pattern of the gospel, Right? The question is, we close out: Is that a man? Are you going to be ruined or renewed? You're going to follow the path of Saul. You're going to follow the path of David, right? Good news: If your life's a mess, that's where they're both at, anyways, right? Because sometimes we think, "Oh man, i messed up so much, beyond God's grace." I think even then, if Saul would have humbled himself, God would have worked with him. Even then, I often think again. I think this text has a lot of parallels between Peter and Judas both making huge blunders at critical moments. And I do think of Judas that he didn't have to follow the path of Saul. Suicide was not his only way out. What if Judas just would have gone back to Jesus? He didn't. Because he wasn't finding strength in God. Peter, on the other hand, does. Peter turns back to Jesus. And Jesus' conversation with Peter at the end of John 21 is where we'll close out. You you don't have to turn there. But John 21, verse 15, it says, you know, as they're there by the seashore having a conversation, it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. You know, and three times they have that conversation, and Peter, of course, gets his pride hurt because they have it three times. You know, but it's it's very interesting elements of what Jesus is saying there to Peter. You know, the question of, do you love me? Do you love me? I mean, for Peter, what would that have stirred up in him? Especially if he was asked three times. I mean, one of the lessons Peter would discover in there, and should discover in that moment, is the sovereignty of God. Jesus had told Peter, here's what's going to happen. Peter had argued, said, no way. Jesus, bringing his words right back to him. Or reminding him, in a sense, to, hey, you know what? Peter, I'm sovereign. I knew what you were going to do before you do it, and I'm still seeking after you. And sometimes we think about the sovereignty of God, and we think, get this image of a detached creator who has set everything in motion and cares not what happens. You have a God who knows how bad your prayer life is, who knows how bad your purity is. Who knows how stubborn you're being with your spouse. Who knows how big of a mess you've made in your life. And yet he still seeks you out. That's good news. That's really good news. And Peter, you love me. I clearly love you. I told you what you were going to do before you did it, and you still did it, and yet I'm still here trying to wrestle with you. That's awesome. That's awesome. Right? That's great news. Right? Feed my lambs. If your and I's relationship is right, then, man, you should treat other people differently. David gets his relationship with God right, and what does he do? He shares. Radically generous. Extends grace and plunder to those who did nothing. Very different way of operating. But again, He understood. Here's how this works, all right? Will you be renewed or will you be ruined? We have gotta be a people continually being renewed, continually reminding ourselves of the bitterness of rock bottom when we've been there. And the, the communion, which we're about to take together, again, was set within the Passover feast, which began with the bitter herbs for the Israelites to remember the bitterness of slavery. A period in our history where they, man, they cried out to God to rescue them because there was no other hope. We to we remember the cross. You should remember the bitterness of your life of sin, and remember that your only strength for life is in God. The only reason for hope is the resurrection of Jesus. The only way you can have justification is what He has done on the cross. And of course, as we take communion, we're taking it communally. Because it's never just about us. You can't have communion at home just by yourself. It's meant to be together as the body of Christ. Recognizing that we all together are in the same boat. We all together are sinners. We all together have justification only in the blood of Christ. And we do that together. And David, as he becomes king, he brings Israel together. He's able to do that because he's right with God. And we can do the same. We must do the same. Amen? Let's have a prayer and then we'll take communion together and then have a few songs to close out. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we do thank you so, so much for David. And even for his stupidity and the choices he made. You know, because God, we are the same. We make the same foolish choices, God. Some of us right now are probably in the same boat as him, God. More surrounded by enemies of you than the followers of you, God. We pray you help us, God. Help us to learn the lessons that, that have to be learned at rock bottom. Help us to be a people that fall on you and, and humble ourselves so we don't have to be humbled, God. But God, help us to, to have it, you know, driven into our souls that in you and you alone can we find strength. And Father, when we, when we find that strength that, that only you can give, God, we pray that it does change us radically, God. We are a repentant people, God, people that live differently, not for self, but for you and for others, God. Practice the radical generosity that David did, God. Not thinking about what's best for him, but rather thinking about others, God. Father, we know that that way of life is really the true pattern of life, God. When we lose life, we actually find life, God. Father, as we take the bread and the wine, God, help us to see that pattern, God. That we have life because you gave up your life. As we take the bread and the wine, God, help us to to examine our lives. To look at it with sobriety that only your spirit can give, God. And to see, just how much we are in need of your grace, God. But help us to rejoice knowing that you have provided this one sacrifice once and for all that deals with all of our problems. And Father, we pray you help us, God, to leave here to change people. In Christ's name we pray, amen.